Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. If you think we're going to talk about that again, Kavanaugh, uh, for half the show, you're going to be real disappointed. It's just not going to happen. We need a break. <laughs> we need a break. Everybody just needs a break. Simmer down. Uh, it's, it's so tired of it. <laughs> uh, welcome back, guys. It's uh, Barstool Politics. I am your illustrious host, Nick McGuire, and joined as always by my dear friends, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, how guys. Come I'm not illustrious. Hey, Nick. I just said I'm illustrious. I didn't say he was illustrious. We're the so good friends. I, I want to be illustrious too. Oh, okay. Next week. <laughs> okay. All right. You can be your excellency or something. Okay. Yeah. Bill, pick a nickname. <laughs> you can't use Grand Dragon again. Oh, all right. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> Do some Googling. Ah, uh, funny. Um, yeah, before we start, um, typical things. Uh, if you like the podcast, have questions about it, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that. Uh, Want to know what we're up to? Follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P O L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on the Untapped app that you can download on iOS and Android. We are Barstool Politics on there, so look for our reviews of all the beers that we try. Um, the podcast itself, uh, SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, uh, most major podcasting platforms. Most of you guys are coming in through iTunes. Uh, so definitely review us, uh, rate us, you know, share us through there. We always appreciate the support. Oh, God, that beer is interesting. Um, and then if you've been here for several weeks now, because I keep saying that every time that I do this, uh, we partnered with the awesome people over Predict It, which is a uh, political prediction market. So think of it as a stark, uh, stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, and it's super fun. We've been using it pretty consistently um, since we uh, we touch base with these guys. What's really great for uh, our listeners is uh, Barcel Politics listeners who use the promotional link when opening up a new account will receive up to a $20 match in their first deposit. So if you open up a $20 account, they will match that $20. So you get $40. It's $20 it's in free deal. money. It's awesome. And the closer we get to midterms, the more exciting the predictive Ooh. markets are getting. We're yeah. seeing some movement. Uh, it's It's been a lot of fun. The Kavanaugh stuff on Predictit was really fascinating. Yeah. Back and forth. As as the news came out, you saw those markets go all mm -hmm. over the place. Resignations, potential 2020 contenders, lots of different things that are up there now. So definitely Imp check it out. Impeachments. Impeachments <laughs> for many different people. Yes. You would be surprised. Yeah. So check that out. Uh, yeah, thank you, Predictit. We love you guys. You're super cool. Um, yeah, like I said, we've talked a lot about Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court and all that stuff over the past few weeks. So we thought we're, we're going to touch on it, definitely. But um, there's 
at least we need to do more world politics yeah. and global politics stuff because um, that's I, I love that stuff there's, so there's much. There's other stuff going on. Yeah, we, we and there's talk about it. and that's the thing. You you get uh, you get tunnel vision yeah. and you forget that uh, the rest of the world is on fire. So let's uh, let's go let's, to the fire. Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> so as we've been consumed by all the Kavanaugh confirmation, we've missed some pretty interesting and consequential global news. Nick, unfortunately, and it's not good news. Um, let's start in Brazil, where the first round of their presidential election, the leading candidate is an ultra-right-wing populist who makes Donald Trump look like a Boy Scout. Aww. Or, yeah. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro is a proud supporter of the military dictatorship that reigned from 1964 to 1985. He once said the regime's only shortcoming was that it had not killed more people. I mean, it's, it's 30,000 more people killed. Oh, he, he was geez. going for the ceiling, man. He supports through it. <laughs> yes, he supports torture, has declared that Brazil is a Christian country, and been denounced, and been denounced multiple times by the Attorney General for hate speech. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the issue. Uh, arguably most offensive was when he told a fellow congresswoman, quote, she doesn't deserve to be raped because she's very ugly. He literally said that. Uh, if that weren't bad enough, we also learned this week of the murder of two prominent journalists, Jamal Koch... How do you say his name, Phil? Koshagi? I think I think so, That's, but I don't. Yeah. I'm not okay, certain. so he's a well-known Saudi Arabian journalist and the and Washington Post columnist who had been critical of the Saudi regime. He vanished last week. The 59-year-old veteran journalist was last seen walking into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. Turkish officials said over the weekend they had concrete evidence that the Saudi writer never left the building and was murdered there, and that his body may have been dismembered and smuggled out. That's that's insane. Uh, in the Saudis, I don't know what the Saudis are thinking. So a second journalist, uh, Victoria Manorova, was raped and murdered in Bulgaria this week. That's the third journalist to have been killed in the EU in the past year. Phil, this was a good week for the forces of authoritarianism and bad news, and, and I fear it's a growing trend. So we're start us off here. This is, uh, this is a really important development. Yeah, so I mean, I think... I mean, there's each of these stories deserves some some time and some discussion, but I I want I I feel like we should start by kind of framing this in the bigger picture of global politics because this is we we've talked about this over the last year and a half. This is a trend that is happening all over the place, right? Whether we're talking about in Eastern Europe or in you know in Poland, whether we're talking about Turkey, whether we're talking in this case in in Brazil, Philippines, right? All the countries around the world have have shifted more blatantly, more boldly towards authoritarianism. Um, the thing that I want to emphasize is the way in which American leadership matters. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not huge on the whole like American exceptionalism. We're the, you know, the best in the world. Um, but I, I do think that we, it, we play a very important role in international politics and our leadership really matters. And this is something that has really changed since Donald Trump came into office. We talked a couple of weeks ago about this shift in America away from internationalism towards this sort of isolationist approach. Um, I, you know, I, I'm going to get weirdly academic, which is this is for the beginning of a podcast. Stop it. Maybe going to be bad. Stick with me, <laughs> listeners. I've been talking in my global politics class about, uh, you know, the big theories of international relations and whether you're talking about, um, you know, there's this idea of hegemonic stability, like that the, the world, the dominant country in the world sort of sets expectations for they structure international politics according to their goals. The U.S. has played that role for a long time and has argued 
not always consistently, but for democracy and human rights. And we've done it in oftentimes a selfish way, but we speak up about stuff. And so it's hard to think about the Saudi regime killing and dismembering an American resident, right? So he was a Saudi citizen, but he lived here and worked for the Washington Post. To kill a journalist in their, in their consulate would have been a huge story that the U.S., um, administration would speak out about, right? Would critique, and and you you get the feeling, and other other sort of academics that I follow on Twitter have been making this point that authoritarian regimes around the country look to the United States for evidence of what they can get away with. How what can I do? How far can I push this? And we have now for two years had a president who praises authoritarians and doesn't push back, doesn't critique these sorts of things. And, and I think it starts to matter. Right. This is why all of a sudden in the last week, the the arrest of the Interpol, mm -hmm. um, the head of Interpol, the you know, the killing of a of a of the journalist in, in Bulgaria. Um, all of this is, I think, evidence of, to some extent, this power vacuum in international politics where the U.S. steps back and everybody's trying to figure out how far they can go and what they can get away with. Sorry if that was too boring. No, no, no. Go ahead, Nick. I'm sorry. What did you say? I <laughs> fell asleep. <laughs> I do think it's late. The United States plays, you're right, Phil, in the sense that the United States plays a, a hegemonic role and in some ways is a restraining force on other actors. So they say this is what accept is acceptable. And the the Trump administration has pulled back from that. And you could argue that the Obama administration pulled back from the world, but it didn't pull back in this sort of, you know, free speech and human rights d dynamic. Uh, and right. so when the United States pulls back, it does create some wiggle room, some space for these regimes to test the waters. And you wonder whether that was the case with Saudi Arabia, where Trump and Saudi Ra the, the king of Saudi Arabia and this Mohammed bin Sal Salman have a really good relationship. And did he take advantage of that to say, Trump's not going to do anything. We're, we're good old boys. He understands this. And if that's the case, it's a really disturbing trend, trend because other countries, other authoritarian regimes will follow suit. Mm -hmm. I, well, I mean, Russia, right, Russia's been doing this for a long time. But they, we they were, just right. do it no matter what. <laughs> well, I know, but again, this is where the U.S. had would have historically stood very mm -hmm. clearly with its allies after the the poisoning um, in London, and we were more wishy-washy, right? So that's where you open the door to stuff like this thing in Saudi Arabia and... Yeah. Mm. I, all right, I'm gonna push back on this. It's, I, I, I don't disagree with the fact that the US has been a stabilizing force in global politics and, and um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, global strategy in general, but... You look back at the last administration uh, and you look at Syria and the red line and the annexation of Crimea and, you know, myriad human rights violations in Southeast Asia and North Africa and West Africa and issues that were, I, I think, equally as alarming, but that there were no direct and visible consequences for. I, I think that while the Trump administration has not helped the situation, that this is a trend that has kind of been in the works for at least the last administration and possibly into the, the waning days of the, the Bush II administration. On top of that, you have the ascent of China, which realistically is, from an economic standpoint, is almost not necessarily on par, but it's getting damn close at this point to where other countries see that there is 
a viable alternative to the American narrative that's out there that doesn't necessarily come with all the complications of you know human rights and civil rights and it's the ability freedom of speech and but I, but there's something out there yeah. that they know they can grab onto and they have an ally that can oppose the u.s the same thing with russia i think there's while they don't have the economic prowess and stability that china and obviously not the u.s has uh, which we've talked about previously, they've planned their hand, uh, they've played their hand yeah. extremely well. And again, they know that there is enough support from like-minded individuals of the same political bent that they can kind of get away with it. Uh, and then you look at something like the EU, the rise of authoritarianism and, and uh, right-wing extremism, um, any sort of extremism uh, across Europe, I think it's a really complicated thing that goes way farther back than the Trump administration. It's you look at something like Greece and France, and it's a, a combination of uh, you know the refugee crisis and immigration and cultural reform and just uh, it's it's you know the history of Europe repeating itself and an understanding of uh, a culture that has been in place for a certain amount of time and people who feel like that's being dismantled and history tends to repeat itself very rapidly in Europe and I, I don't think that this is a new thing a new trend by any means uh, may, in any way shape or form and some of this may be out of the control of the United States I think you're right yeah. there, are, there are forces that are moving whether or not the United States engages and I, I would also say I think it's important we often fall prey to this argument that the United States can control everything in the world. We, we should, and we absolutely will. <laughs> but here's, and I think if we can talk about populism, and we could also talk about the attack on, on journalists. And I do think the, if you think about the recent attack on these journalists and the attack on the press, I wonder, and I think this probably is the case, Trump's repeated attack on the media does create space for these authoritarian leaders to argue that this is okay that journalists are dangerous it's fake news so you know there absolutely is something there that these authoritarian regimes seize upon the language that the trump administration and trump in particular use and i wonder whether that played any role in this decision to say like hey this guy was he was critical of us uh he was attacking the narrative we wanted to put out there let's just take him out and and let's see what trump does um, yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's scary, Phil. I don't I don't want to I, I I should clarify I don't I don't want to be making the argument that this is all happening because of Trump. Right. The, the, these forces of authoritarianism were in place before their you know economic forces, immigration, all sorts of stuff is is feeding this. But the boldness or, or the blatant way in which this is being done is new. So when when Russia, you know, in, stuck its nose into Ukraine, there were, like, you know, we, maybe we should have responded harsh, more harshly, but we did impose sanctions. We were critical. We we critiqued Russia, the the West, you know, the EU with the United States made, you know, bold condemnation of it. Wrote There's a very not strongly that does, worded letter. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, this is one of those things where to what extent does that matter in, in you know, it, it's easy to say, well, we, we, you know, we, we made a harsh statement. But, you know, Russia maybe would have done more had we, you know, this is, this is sort of, it's, it's a counterfactual in some ways. Like what would have happened if we hadn't spoken up? So now we are, we're just not even saying anything, right? There's not even a, there's no sanctions. There's no condemnation. The, the U.S. hasn't, other countries have condemned 
the you know the disappearance of this Saudi journalist. We still haven't. Mm -hmm. We still are making statements about we're waiting to see and see if we can find. It. That's new. That is that is different for the United States to be taking that approach. We have in the past expressed concern, right, even from the beginning. And so I, I still think that that stepping back out of that leadership role matters. So you talk about China, you talk about other countries coming up to challenge the U.S. When the U.S. is willing to cede that leadership role to those countries, mm -hmm. I think that's where this starts to play out. And, 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 and it does. I think it does matter. I think yeah. it, and if we play if we talk power politics, Saudi Arabia is powerful because the United States allows it to be powerful. Correct. And we have an incredible amount of leverage over Saudi Arabia when we choose to exercise it. Right. And so you're right, Phil, if, if if Trump had come out today and said, we condemn this, if the Saudi regime is behind this, there will be consequences, this should not happen on our watch, Saudi Arabia would not do this again, right. or they would do it more discreetly, right? They would be careful about the way in which... Yeah, make uh, sure you chop him up quietly. Right. Not in your... Don't I mean, do it in your embassy, dumbass. Isn't that... I mean, this? think about this. In... Turkey, he, you know, they did this in a foreign country in their own embassy when they knew that there was going to be evidence of this. Right? I mean, there are cameras all over the place. Just, Turkey was going to figure out that the guy walks in, doesn't walk out. He is a prominent international figure. An American journalist. Yes. I mean, he's not an American citizen, but work, working in the United States. Right. Yeah. Who had been, it, been... That is bold. Yes, the leading critic of late of the Saudi regime. I mean, this was you knew this was going to blow up, and either it was a, a terrible miscalculation... Or it was just like you said, Phil. Let's see what happens, and it, it is disturbing to, mm -hmm. to see that 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 a regime feels comfortable doing that. Well, yeah, I mean, you can see the effects of the Trump administration with authoritarian, authoritarian leaders, whether you're talking about you know Duterte or anybody in um, South America, Central America, using the term fake news pretty consistently, yeah. and it's it's a extraordinarily effective doctrine if you use it to its the most extreme level. Um, I, uh, there's only mm, I, I think the U.S. And, and Trump specifically is culpable of that. But um, at the same time, like, I, I mean, what can you what can you really do in that situation? You, you can you can spout rhetoric. And, and but at the same time, these countries are responsible for their own actions. The US could cut off arms sales to Saudi Arabia. I mean the come on man. And, <laughs> like let's let's be real. Let's cut through the bullshit real quick. So I know I know that you probably won't like this Nick. No, I won't. People <laughs> might not either. But rhetoric matters. Oh, right? yeah. The fact that you say stuff does matter. So even if you're not willing to do anything else, the US openly condemning Saudi Arabia provides that check. The next time they have a somebody who a dissident that they just want to execute, maybe they pause a little bit more because sure. You know, and so I, I think that it, that's an example of something that takes literally zero effort to come out and condemn You're us, right. that we can't even bring ourselves to do that. Yeah, the zero effort thing is important. There's a, 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 a There needs to be a middle ground between rhetoric and then doing nothing to condemn something and then having rhetoric and then doing nothing to combat situations that arise, which has kind of been the the dichotomous relationship between the past two administrations. And the irony to all of this is the Republican Party used to be the foreign policy party that would push back, talked right. about the importance of not giving up an inch, about calling out, you know, hypocrisy, not hypocrisy, aggression and, and bad behavior internationally. 
And and you're hearing stuff like Bob Corker came out and condemned this. You hear a handful of Republicans going after the Saudi regime, but the Republican Party is being much more complacent on this. And this is that's not where they used to be. I mean, you could argue that Democrats historically have have been softer on international, uh, you know, bad regimes than the Republicans have. So it's just like everything is flipped now. I don't think they care nearly as much as they used to. They I think should. there's. I, I absolutely agree, one hundred percent. I think they're so embroiled with the domestic bullshit that's going yeah. on right now that they just don't. They just don't care. Well, that did come up. So uh, the day that Kavanaugh was confirmed, uh, that was the same, I think the same day that the news broke about this, the murder of the Saudi journalist. And there were two Trump officials when asked by the press, can we get a comment on this? And they said, no comment. Today is Kavanaugh Day, right? Right. And and I understand that. It was a domestic news story. Uh, But but boy, it seems like there are going to be global consequences to the United States shifting its focus away from from its hegemonic role. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and that that shifting away, right? So yeah. this we can use this to take the story back to Brazil, yes. right? So it's not just that we're not being critical of um, bad players in the international regime, international arena. Um, it's that we're setting the standard for other other leaders. You know, you saw this early on with Duterte and the Philippines, who sort of took to some of Trump's rhetoric, right? The idea of uh, you know enemy of the people and all of that, fake news. Hmm. The, the Brazil example is a is a pretty clear-cut example of someone who, I mean, he's been around long before Trump, but he the, the opening, I think, that Trump has provided has allowed him to do this. People describe him as the, the Trump of Brazil, the right? The Brazilian Trump, yes. The Brazilian Trump, right? Um, and so, <laughs> the, you know, it's where, it's where the, it's where, the, this is where rhetoric matters, right? Because I think there are a lot of things that Trump says that he doesn't mean, right? He's just saying something because it gives him a political advantage. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he says that, that he says stuff about fake news, if he says stuff about, you know, immigrants or whatever, it 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 is what starts to set these new standards for what is acceptable or, or yeah. you know, when, when the U.S. was kind of playing this role of moral authority, pushing democracy around the world, um, you know, the, the rhetoric that the U.S., used mattered even if we propped up crappy dictators in other places we talked about democracy and freedoms and and all of that and so we've taken this other role now which creates this space so you have this guy in brazil again there's a lot of there's a lot of circumstances that have to be understood huge corruption um, scandal in brazil massive unemployment economic problems there's a lot of stuff that's going into this election but this guy who comes along and takes the same sort of Trump rhetoric, but has a deeper meaning behind it, right? When he's talking about how he thinks that the police should torture and that the military regime should have killed 30,000 people, it's not bullshit that he's saying to fire up a crowd. It's He's he's saying it because he believes it, right? And so... Um, yeah, I don't, I don't. It's 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 disturbing to me. And, and I think there are society, global factors that are driving the rise of these populist factors into Nick's yep. uh, candidates. Nick's point earlier, right? Some of that is just systemic. It's it's anti-globalization. What strikes me so much is that I thought Trump was about as far as we were going to go in terms of these kind of outlandish populist figures. He is on another level. He he's yeah. he's way beyond Trump. I mean, he's talking his homophobic, his sexism, his uh, racist language. He is he's publicly said he's in favor of dictatorships, and he is widely popular, especially with the youth. 
this strikes me as how is this happening? And I understand you're right, Phil. There is terrible economic crisis in Brazil. There is corruption. There's all sorts of negative factors. But it's shocking to me that that it can continue. And this, this suggests to me that we're only at the beginning of what we're going to see over the next 10 to 20 years in terms of uh, the, the type of populism and nationalism and you know potentially fascist type arguments because that's essentially what he's making right now is is on the right and then on the left you know we have Venezuela they're making similar arguments so it's not necessarily left right dynamic here so the, I mean then realistically what role is the U.S. supposed to play in this situation like I, I mean we've gone down yeah. the road of trying to either impose or um, advance the 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 role of democracy in Central and South America and Southeast Asia and Indonesia and pretty much anywhere that you know you yeah. can find on a map. What what are we? It's I understand the 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 concept of being the global moral authority, but with the advent of globalization and kind of the the world system that we helped to create after World War II. We we had to have known at some point that this was going to grow out of our control, and there was going to be, or there were going to be forces that would oppose us at some point. And we've finally gotten to that point where there are different narratives now that people are either ascribing to, or taking our narrative and completely mutating it and and warping it into something that is different. What? What is our position supposed to be? Do we ta- do we reassert ourselves on the global stage and, you know, try and advance democracy for the sake of democracy, even though we know that doesn't work a lot of the time? Or do we kind of let it run its course and we deal with the situations as they arise and they become more acute, mm-hmm. I guess, for yeah. lack of a better term? A great question. Phil. Go, Phil. So I, I would argue that this is where it matters that you have principles. <laughs> um, Here, all so, principle mean, that, and rhetoric mm-hmm. today. I know, I know. Well, the idea, the idea that there, you know, that, that there are forces that are rising that are opposed to this kind of Western American democratic, you know, neoliberal model of global governance. Those, four, I mean, this is not the first time that's happened, right? Mm-hmm. It's the first time it's looked like this. But uh, during the whole Cold War, there was this, you know, pushback against kind of Western democratic forces around, around the world. But during that time, we, again, either from a very generous standpoint, believed in human rights and democracy and, you know, free trade, or from a cynical standpoint, we believed that this was better for us. Whatever, whatever your argument is, we had these principles that we that, you know, this is what we believe in. And we think that the world is better if it's structured along these lines. And so we stuck with NATO and all of these other Western allies who believe those ideas as well. Mm -hmm. The reason I say all that is that I don't know what the Trump administration's principles are. Right. So I, I don't I don't know. You know, at least even whether it's George Bush and Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and and Ronald Reagan, they differed on lots of stuff, but they believed in democracy. They believed in basic human rights. And I don't know with Donald Trump, what's the thing? Like, what is the Trump? I mean, what's the Trump doctrine? What how what is his worldview? Um, This is where he has separated himself from allies who believe who have pushed for democracy and human rights. And he's sidled up with. North Korea and Saudi Arabia and, and, you know, the Philippines. And so, you know, how do we respond? There's ways to talk about that. There's a, 
sort of a cynical what's best for the U.S. way to respond. But there's another one, which is that how do you respond? You respond based on what you think is right. And so if you think that human rights is correct, then you critique the guy from Brazil. You critique Duterte. You critique North Korea. And, and you know, I know that that's hopelessly naive. Of no, me, I, I, I don't think, think so. that's naive at all. I, I, I'm sorry. No, I, go ahead, just go ahead. Real, yeah, yeah, it's I, 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 I absolutely agree with that. I, I think it's extraordinarily difficult, especially when you're talking about situations like Brazil and Peru and many countries in South America that were supposed to be, especially Brazil, they were supposed to be at the, the turn of the 21st century. They were supposed to be the powerhouses. You know, they were economic and and cultural kind of touchstones that were going to rise up and become new centers of of commerce and economics and now they they're just crumbling under just horrible economic conditions and you have youth that kind of grew up in that time period and feel disillusioned and and betrayed by their governmental systems and the economic system that has taken advantage of them and took advantage of their parents and they don't know anything else. That's a really, really hard thing to yeah. combat. I, I do think that in the end, our principles are what set us apart. But when you're talking about people who can't survive and be be comfortable on, on a regular basis, that's really something that is yeah. going to be difficult to kind of just break people out of that mindset. And it's hard to know how powerful these wins are, right? So, the, the, you know, this may be a force that's beyond what one country can do and shape. But one thing the United States could do is stop enabling this behavior, stop enabling the rhetoric, the attack on the speech. I mean, right now, to Phil's point, what you're what we're doing is we're enabling and allowing the Duterte's, uh, you know, whatever it might be, you know, in Brazil. But we could stand for something else to say that, no, you can't do this. You know why systems change slowly at first and then it becomes more and more rapid. And I, I wonder whether we're now moving towards the rapids a bit more. You yeah. know, the, the the pieces have started to move a little bit and then it becomes easier and easier. And that, again, that's why it's so important to reinforce the international system the United States created after World War II yeah. based on global economic interdependent alliance structures. I mean, there was real value to that. And I think we've forgotten that or the Trump administration has forgotten that. And that was a bipartisan thing up until two years ago. Well, and, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, there there needs to be a, a global pragmatism about what you how that system should work. And yeah. realistically, the strategy should not be you need to accept democratic principles because we said so yeah. or because we think it's better you need to do that because yes it's going to be better for your people but we're going to increase economic development and trade and bring you into the international system and it's going to be better for your people everything's going to be more stable and that's the end of the situation it's yeah i i again 100 percent think the principles are are again what set us apart but there needs to be a carrot at the end of that stick. I would argue the carrot is that system ultimately benefits the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Oftentimes we th think too short-sighted about it, but the United States, it's worth taking some short-term hits on the system, whether those hits are economically, politically, you know, human rights, because the long-term development of a global interdependent system based on U.S. leadership benefits us. Yes, we yeah. all need to be codependent. <laughs> right. Agreed. Yes. <laughs> oh, well, should we jump and talk beers? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, this was a good, good, good topic, Phil. I liked that. Yeah, why don't you lead us off with your your beer? Uh, so in a 
in the theme of an uh, interdependent, interconnected world. <laughs> My first beer was a German beer, uh, Wein Stefaner. It was their, uh, this is their, well, I, I assumed it was their Oktoberfest beer, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just their beer. It was fine. It was. Um, an, <laughs> You've been tough on beers the last I couple know, of weeks. I know, I know. It was I, it was unremarkable. That, that's what I will say. <laughs> <laughs> that does not mean it was bad. I would totally. If you handed me another one, I would drink it without complaint. I just I won't remember it. It tomorrow. was it was mundane. <laughs> the second one I am having is I've had I've had von Trapp brewing, uh, yeah, beers in the past on here, because um, we've talked about Sound of Music. But uh, it's a it's a brewery out of Vermont, and tonight I'm having their Pilsner Lager. Um, I like it better than the Vine Stefaner one. It's 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 a nice, light, drinkable lager. Nice. Nick, we're drinking a, a unique beer tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so the, I actually remembered this one this time. We're drinking a Cerveza de Mesquite, which is a farmhouse ale brewed with mesquite beans uh, from, is it Jester King? Jester King Brewing, which is out of Austin, actually. Hey, it's good Texas beer. Yeah, I liked I liked your Midwest pronunciation of those Spanish terms. <laughs> yeah, cerveza de mesquite. De me, me, mace 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 quite. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I I don't have a good accent. I, I'm gonna I'm actually gonna read this. Um, half of it's in Spanish. I saw uh, that. That's yeah, why I handed you I, the yeah, bottle. Yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna read that. Um, I was actually good at Spanish, but I forgot it. Um, Source Mexican beans from Sandeep Giwali of Miche Bread in Austin. Uh, added them to the mash, fermented in stainless steel with our mixed culture of brewer's yeast and native yeast and bacteria. That sounds gross. Uh, unfiltered, unpasteurized, and 100% bottled con- bottled condition. I don't care about any of that. Tell them what's on um, the tell them what's on the label. Oh, right! It's the guy riding a goat and like pointing <laughs> at a tree or something. Yeah, he looks very happy about it, and the goat's eating something out of the tree. It looks a little weird. The goat looks a little demonic. His eyes are red. You know, but um, Nick, when you brought that in, I was excited about the guy riding the goat because yeah. I thought that was a great label. I thought I was going to hate this beer. Yeah. I did not despise it. Right? It was it was actually it grew on me. It, it, <laughs> it was, did. Yeah. It almost had like a Christmassy flavor to it, like something you would you know drink around the holidays. It's more of a sour, I feel like, than a. It, you're right. House. It has some of that. It has a lot of spices to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't want to drink more than what I drank. Yeah, but it was good. It was a creative, and a lot of times we drink different eclectic beers, and you're like, eh, that's eclectic. I never want to drink that again. This was solid. I would I would give it. A thumbs up. Yeah, I'm not getting the mesquite thing either. Um, I don't even know what that is, but yeah, or the beans thing, but it tasted solid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was. Yeah, it it definitely to me it it was it was more of a sour than a. Yeah, I guess a farmhouse ale is is fairly close, but um, yeah, it's it really kind of took me by surprise. I expected it to be kind of heavier and um, have more of a a sharpness, kind of a a a little bit of a, a charred taste to it, which it has none of that. No. Um, yeah, I kind of liked it, good it to be honest. Yeah. Good choice, Nick. Well yeah. done. Thanks. All right. Goat guy. Speed round. <laughs> All right. Let's go to topic number one for speed round. So on Tuesday, President Trump's ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, announced that she would resign at the end of the year. She gone. That's good. Uh, she, this marks the departure of one of the few <laughs> high-profile women in the Trump administration. The move surprised nearly everyone. Well, maybe everybody but John Bolton. Uh, Haley was a star within the administration and someone whose time within the administration did not appear to dampen her popularity. Over time, it was clear the administration was moving in a new direction on foreign policy. 
She represented the old-school, traditional Republican foreign policy, and John Bolton is having none of that. Phil, what should we make of this move, and what's your sense of her legacy uh, that Haley leaves behind? And should we be talking about President Haley in the near future? I, I think so. <laughs> yeah, so let's let's start with that last. <laughs> yeah, put your money down. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, predict it. Mm-hmm. She, I, yeah, I mean, she said in her statement that she doesn't plan to run for president or whatever. She's, she, we're gonna hear from yeah. her. Um, I the 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 resignation was or the whatever this is stepping down yeah the retiring comes um, a little earlier than people were suspecting it sounds like a lot of people thought it would come after the midterms it's unclear why it happened so suddenly now um, have you I ever dealt she's... with John Bolton he's terrible like you get I about know. two months in and you're like I'd rather do anything than hang out with John Bolton yeah but then you just want to touch that mustache and everything's okay that's again. right I'm sorry Phil go ahead she's uh, <laughs> she's she's a smart lady and I, I think I don't know I think uh, I, we had a political consultant on campus today talking about the upcoming elections and sort of how to get involved and whatnot and and one of the students asked about uh, Nikki Haley and she compared her to George H.W. Bush who had served as UN ambassador under Nixon and got out before everything fell apart in the Nixon administration. And, and this, she, she saw like a very similar thing that, that Nikki Haley's smart. She's, you know, this is the things are only going to get messier for the Trump administration moving forward. She's, you know, added this credential. We're going to, we're going to hear from her. Um, I don't know what to make of her legacy is, is an interesting question. People have been talking about her this in the last, whatever, 24 hours as this great moderate um and she's she's not she's not a moderate she's she's you know pretty on the core sort of conservative credentials she's you know she's She's, she checks them off rock solid yeah a supporter of most of trump's policies um i do think that she has played the role of one of the adults in the room she's been willing to speak up to challenge trump when she doesn't agree with him um I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to make of her. I think that the contrast to the Trump, Trump administration has made her look, you know, smart and uh, like an adult in the room. But this is not, this was not really her, you know, her her background was not in international politics. Um, I think she's played this role s- smart, smartly. Yeah, smartly. Well, she yeah. played it well um, in a way that that that's going to benefit her in the long run. But she, she managed. Um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I just I, I wonder if people are giving her more credit than she deserves at this point. I think that's true. She elevated herself mm-hmm. when everybody else in the Trump administration has been pulled down. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I think her. You're absolutely right that we will we will hear a lot from her in the future, and that's when her legacy will be written. This is an an opening act opening act at best. I think she was she was a savvy political player. She knew enough to kind of stick it to Russia, but was able to toe the line enough to also be friendly and respected by Trump for what she stood for and how she presented herself, um, which, I, to my knowledge, no one in that administration has been able to do. Um, I, I think she's she was able to check, like Phil said, able to check this off in the, you know, political prowess uh, uh, and, and knowledge and credentials box. I, I think this sets her up to be a significant contender uh, in in the fairly near future for the Republican Party. Do you think she cha- is there any chance that she challenges Trump in 2020? Uh, no, no, that'd be no, no. 
I think it's too soon, yeah. and his base is too solid right now. And that ceremony yesterday suggested to me that she wouldn't, right? They shook hands, they smiled at each other, they had this amicable departure. That means she she gets that the Republican Party is behind Trump right now. So she doesn't want to mess with that because that would that would be problem for year, years down the road. Yeah, she's too smart for that. Yeah. You know, what's, what? if I were predicting, what's going to happen is that in 2020, uh, 2020 a Democrat's going to win. In 2024, she runs and she wins. Hold, hold yeah, on. Yeah. Wait, wait, what? Trump loses in 2020. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a Democrat takes the office for four years. Haley runs in 2024 and she's unstoppable. Really? I think so. She is a fantastic politician. Now, I disagree with her foreign policy approach. I don't think she was particularly effective. Uh, I don't think she was a great diplomat. I mean, but she was, as you said, she was an adult in the room, and she knows how to work a room. I mean, she she managed to get out of the Trump administration unscathed. Yep. That's impossible. I mean, think about the mooch. <laughs> I mean, the mooch went down in 10 days. Um, <laughs> no, I really think there's something to her, and I... I I, I don't agree with a lot of what she says, but I, I think she is a star and a force to be reckoned with. She will be with. the anti-Hillary. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that she will be a major player in Republican yeah. Party politics in the future. I think I think it's way too early to say that she has escaped the Trump administration unscathed. I think the, the, the fallout from the Trump administration will play out for years to come. And that does not mean that it will play out in a bad way. It's possible that eight years from now that, you know, Trump will be, I don't know, we won't. But it's possible that eight years from now people will be like, that guy was like, what the hell were we doing? Um, And so I I don't. And and as a person who was an adult in the room and therefore in some ways an enabler for policies that, you know, that are Trumpian policies on immigration and all sorts of other things. I I I don't know. I don't I don't know that she will escape unscathed yet. It's a great question. What you were saying about getting her getting out early, I hadn't thought about that with Nixon. Getting Mm -hmm. out early is a brilliant choice because she can say I pushed back against him. Uh, mm-hmm. And and maybe she sees the writing on the wall. Maybe she sees what's coming in the next six months. Oh, she didn't just That's... leave, like you know, on, on a whim. I'm she, yeah, she has to know something is happening. Her <clears throat> her ability to say that you know my hands are clean are in some ways it, it's. <sighs> It's weakened by the fact that she resigned by standing next to Trump and kissing his ass, yeah, right? True. So that's true. I mean, that, that's 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 to come back around and say that I, you know, I was the adult in the room and I pushed back against him, um, is you know she can make that claim, but I I don't know. I so I but I know the bell rang, but before we move on, I want to <laughs> I want to say I want to talk for a second longer about this. Because I, I want to know how you feel about the fact that the George W. Bush administration is in so is in many ways back, right? Yeah. Brett Kavanaugh, who played a big role in the in the Bush administration, is now a Supreme Court justice. John Bolton's back. The talk is of uh, Dina Powell, Powell possibly yeah. being the replacement, who played a big role in the Bush administration. Oh, the good old days. Or yeah. the beginning of the Trump administration was, you know, chaotic with all sorts of crazy people in it. There's still a lot of crazy people in it, but there there has been this kind of backfilling of people from the Bush administration. And I I here's my question to the two of you. Is that reassuring? Yes. Because they are adults. They're coming from they have experience in a previous administration. Or is that disheartening? Because these are people who in the Bush administration are responsible for the Iraq war and the Afghan war that we're still dealing with. And in some ways, these are people who a number of years ago we would have said 
will be banned from government forever for the mistakes mm -hmm. that they made under the Bush administration. And now they're back and we're feeling <clears throat> reassured by it. So so how how do how should we feel about the return of the Bush administration to the Trump administration? I'm very comfortable with it. <laughs> we uh, we we have the the um political memory of of goldfish in this country when you're burning bush two in effigy and, and calling him a, a nazi and putting a hitler mustache on him and then he paints something and oh he wasn't so bad he was he's cuddly he's cuddly yeah. now i'd love to have a beer with him <laughs> i think it speaks to the degree to which the the republican party has been trumpified and a lot of these individuals, I don't think they would have gotten on board two years ago. In fact, they didn't. They made it clear yeah. that they weren't going to join this administration. <clears throat> and now Trump is the Republican brand. Now it's acceptable to do so. So to your question of whether I feel better about it, I think there's more professionals in the room. That makes me a little more at ease about some of the decisions. But I still remain deeply concerned about a president who, you know, goes off on whims. So I, I think the it becomes more professional, but it, I don't, it doesn't remove us from this chaotic administration. I mean, we've also talked about the fact <sighs> that even the the press and members of the administration have said we're essentially running the government outside of his control. So yeah. I, if it's regardless of what you think of these particular individuals political leanings or their their um, individual doctrines I do think that they're extremely intelligent individuals who know how to get a job done sure. um, which is potentially good potentially bad if, <laughs> right. you know we'll see if how it plays somebody, out other, if, if we're at war with Iraq again in a few months we'll exactly. you know we'll, we'll talk about it yeah or what if we end up at war with Afghanistan again? Oh, wait. We're st still still there. Still there. Oh, what? Okay. Still there. I thought we were done like three years ago. No? Let's talk Did about I miss that story? Let's, okay. let's jump to angry mobs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Following the, speaking of uh, Brett Kavanaugh, following the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, we've witnessed a new strategy out of the White House. Trump and Republicans have more broadly, and Republicans more broadly, have cast the Trump protesters as an angry mob. An angry mob that threatens the country's order with, uh, as the midterms approach. And Republicans are casting themselves as defenders of order. In a tweet, Trump offered a simple lesson. He said, quote, You don't hand matches to an arsonist and you don't give power to an angry left-wing mob. Wait, is that Reagan? That was Reagan. You, you mentioned <laughs> Reagan and I, I, I went to Reagan. <laughs> Uh, at a rally Tuesday, Democrat. Uh, uh, at a rally on Tuesday, the president described Democrats as radical, unhinged, dim. That's how he's calling them now. They're not Dems anymore. They're Dims. Love it. <laughs> An angry left-wing mob that would destroy people's business, uh, provide sanctuary to murderous immigrants, gangs, and plunge the nation into poverty and chaos. The Democrats have become too extreme, and they've become, frankly, too dangerous to govern. Trump said, "They've gone wacko." <laughs> Uh, it's like a whole other level. In defending his Supreme Court nominee at a rally earlier in the week, he said, quote, it was a disgraceful situation that brought about brought about by people that were evil. Mm -hmm. Ooh, these are powerful words. Phil, this is going to be good for you because you've been hitting the rhetoric theme today. Uh, Phil, angry mobs and evil people. That's a pretty serious delegitimization of the opposition. What are we going to make or what should we make of this new tactic? This is terrifying. <laughs> this is this is 
This is uh, awful. This is terrible. I mean, so back to the first topic we talked about. Mm -hmm. Forget what lessons we're giving to the rest of the world. We're, I mean, you know, the, <laughs> we could be critical of Brazil, but our own president is is basically saying the entire anybody who opposes him, the entire opposition, is illegitimate, is evil, is too dangerous to govern. Like wacko. That, that that I mean, this, and evil, this is right? I, yeah. I'm on yes to to call them evil. That is, that is, I'm trying to think of the word. I, I, I was going to say that's concerning. It's beyond concerning. Yeah. That's really terrifying. I don't think, you know, we, we've talked a lot about this over the year and a half. I, I don't know how much intention there is behind the stuff that he's saying, right? I don't know that, I don't know that he is setting out to dehumanize Democrats, right? For some, like, I don't think he has some evil plan in which he's trying to dehumanize them so that he can begin a purge or whatever. Um, I think he's saying it because the crowds react to it. Uh, but it's, it's incredibly dangerous and it's dangerous. The evidence of its danger is in the fact that the crowds react to it, right? Like he talks about angry mobs while the people in the auditorium chant, lock her up, right? So the, the idea of, of, you know, he's he's accusing the left of being angry mobs that are evil, who can't govern, and he's firing up people. I mean, this this is the sort of thing that happens before you end up in, you know, a civil war or a collapse of a society. I, I, this is this is insane. Uh, <laughs> all right. Let, let go of the pearls there a little bit. <laughs> Just, yeah, not, not so constrained. I, it's... I, I, I don't disagree that this is absolutely not the right rhetoric you should be using. But at the same time, you have his, realistically, his pres presidential challenger saying roughly the same thing, saying that Trump and the people who support him are going to dismantle your way of life. And they're going to, I think it was Schumer or somebody else saying uh, prior to uh, Kavanaugh being nominated, not nominated, but uh, confirmed that. Uh, obviously, Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned. Uh, the, you know, they were going to kill millions of people with their decisions, blah, 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 blah. And then you have on top of that, you have people in the media, verified people in the media, like on Twitter, going saying that members of uh, the Republican Party should uh, never have a moment's peace again in public life or that the Republican Party is no longer the Republican Party. It's the rape party. Like It's. I, I'm sorry, hold on. This one's my favorite. Fuck these ancient white dudes and the entire GOP. Like, regard. I I agree. The, what the what Trump is doing is is abhorrent and should not be done. But you can't say that it's the it's only coming from one side at this point. No. So I, but there's I, a I, difference, no, wait, Nick. Wait, wait, wait. What? What? Go, Phil. Go. No, you guys can just fight amongst yourselves. I'll just watch. <laughs> It's not only coming from one side, but there is a difference between the goddamn president of the United States doing it and some journalist on Twitter doing it. What so about they, Hillary Clinton? Hillary. So, yeah, we can. Uh, let's not play whataboutism. If Hillary Clinton says that Republicans are evil, then she's wrong. Yeah, right? that's what she said. 
it. No, 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 no. She said that she said that they don't deserve like with civility or whatever it was. Like we shouldn't be civil. She said, she specifically said they are going to dismantle. They don't believe in what you believe in. They're going to dismantle your way of life. But that's different than saying the other side is evil, right? It's an important distinction there, right? So, long-standing political debate has been about they have one vision, we have a different vision. You're absolutely Our right. Our vision is better than ver- their vision. That's different than saying those guys on the other side are evil, right? Yeah. That's but, a, uh, all right. Uh, no, I, I, I'm sorry, and like I don't want to keep interrupting yeah. this, but like we're taking one thing in 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 one moment in time, which I have heard equally as horrendous things coming from the left. We're saying that people on the right are evil and stupid and ridiculous for what they believe in. I completely agree. None of this stuff should be said, and I agree that the president is the last person who should say this. Regardless. You want to talk about principles. If you are the opposition, there should be you should not cave into that type of rhetoric either. Is it wrong to dis- to say that people are evil? That to say that you disagree with my political views, therefore you are evil. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So why is it difficult to say why is it hard to say that Donald Trump saying this is fucking wrong? I just said that it's wrong. <laughs> So why do we have to say like I don't I, I get what you're saying, which is to say that Democrats do this too, but there's so much of this like like I'm unwilling to criticize the president or to say that the that this is dangerous because Democrat this is that is part of the problem in society today. I agree. Right now. I fundamentally agree. I'm saying that regardless of where you are and what position you are in and what what political alignment you have. This is not okay from either perspective, and it needs to stop because it's dismantling everything about, again, what we've talked about previously about the principles of American democracy and culture and society. It's not okay. None of this should be happening. Here's what I would say. I think there's we have to be careful about the distinctions here. I don't have a problem with either side, either political party, the public being uncivil, right? I mean, so there's a lot of conversation about being civil right now. And I will say Hillary Clinton came out. I don't think her comments were helpful. I wish she hadn't said them. Same thing with Eric Holder. Eric Holder said that, you know, you know, if they go low, we should, you know, kick them or whatever. Yeah, that's I don't think that's helpful at all. I, but that being said, I don't have a problem with people showing up, protesting, be, being uncivil. That's democracy. It's sometimes ugly. I do have a problem with the president of the United States demonizing the other, right? I mean, so if we want to push back, we want to have that rhetoric. There's a difference between being in, uh, uncivil at a democratic, you know, uh, lower grassroots level and the president of the United States saying the other side is evil, wacko, dangerous. I, I think that... That creates a cycle that is really, really problematic. Agreed. Yeah. The, the 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 other side of that is that we've now separated ourselves into two opposing mm-hmm. camps, where yeah. regardless of what one side says, the other side is going to respond in kind and worse to make the situation benefit their political perspective and help them win an election. Sure. That's not a good policy to have. I, I agree it's effective in yeah. the way that things are going right now, but we need to remove ourselves from that mindset because it's going to do severe long-lasting damage going forward I would agree with that you you have to get back to a place where both sides accept that if the other is in power it's not the end of the world no right you, you may not appreciate the the uh, political agenda of that side but hey it's, it's okay right? And, right and when Trump uses that language and again if, if Hillary Clinton and the Democrats use that language I condemn them as well 
it's okay. The opposition has a right to be in power, and we should accept that legitimacy. And my fear is that when you start talking about the other side being evil, it's like you do anything, to your point, Nick, anything you can to prevent evil from getting in power. Mm. That, that scares me. Yep. It's no longer about discussing or debating the issues, right? It's not about, yes. I disagree with their issues. I think their issues are bad for America. I think their, issue, their, their policy stances will harm Americans. You could even say, I think their policies are... Yes evil right, right? I, I, I don't like the use of evil really and even no, in that it's ridiculous but do what no I, I mean saying anything is evil in those situations is fucking ridiculous I don't know if the if <laughs> Donald Trump announced Holocaust 2 tomorrow all I right. would feel pretty confident all right. saying that in the context of things that are going on right now nothing is evil like you know it's everything can be debated and talked about and worked on like there's there's nothing that can't be negotiated and they're, you know, come to a consensus on to say something that is evil means that you've given up on reason at yeah. that point and right. you don't right. want to hear an alternative. Yeah. So, right. I, right. yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It, it's, it's fucking ridiculous. Of, Phil. <laughs> yeah. The whole point of, of resorting to evil. Yes. Yeah. Sort of like categorical condemnation of someone or something is to end debate, right? There right. is nothing to be discussed. We are good, they are bad. Mm -hmm. um, that's, the, I mean, the part that is terrifying is that this is the thing that occurs in countries or in places before the resort to evil. I mean, to evil, sorry, <laughs> to violence. Because <laughs> yes. when, you, when you dehumanize other people, when someone else is evil, there's no point in having a conversation with them, right? Yes. The story that we have told ourselves as a society for, you know, forever is that you eliminate evil. You don't engage with evil, and that's that is what is so incredibly yes. concerning right. and upsetting to me is that when you dehumanize the other side as evil, there is no reason to engage. In fact, the only way to deal with evil is to eliminate of it. Of course, and, and the history has shown us that is what happens when over you shift over. away from democracy, whether it's from the left or the right. When you delegitimize the other, no, it's 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 scary. Speaking of scary, let's talk about the climate. <laughs> None of this segue. is going to matter. <laughs> That's a good point. That's... We'll all be dead long before any of this shit happens. <laughs> so a landmark report from the United Nations Scientific Panel on Climate Change paints a far more dire picture of the immediate consequences of climate change than previously thought and says that avoiding the damage requires transforming the world economy at a speed and scale that has no documented historical precedent. That, that sounds easy, Nick. Yeah. Um, the report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, change describes the world uh, a world of worsening food shortages, wildfires, and mass die-off of coral reefs as soon as 2040. Uh, that was without question the most frightening re of reports on the dangers of climate change. When asked about the report, President Trump ex expressed skepticism, saying, quote, it was given to me. And I want to look at who drew it, you know, which group drew it. I can give you reports that are fabulous, and I can give you reports that aren't so good. He sounds like the kind of guy who's on top of this. He's just, he's just there. Um, Phil, you drew up a whole bunch of reports. This is pretty terrifying. And strikes me that we're so caught up looking at the shiny object that is Trump, we're not paying attention to the other real issues or threats here. Um, drew us some knowledge, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you say I drew up a bunch of reports, but I, I just draw them, just like yeah. he was saying. Oh Crayon. Crayon. Crayons. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't I mean this is just this is just depressing yeah. to me. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I don't really, I mean, you know, as we talk, there's a, a massive hurricane hitting Florida that's the third lowest barometric pressure ever recorded. Um, and, you know, this is... That cool. sounds good. Co- low. Coincidence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> real low. Yeah. Yeah. Low. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't... I don't even know what to say to this. I mean, this is this feels like a the the science is so clearly behind this and has been behind it for so long, but it's a it's an issue that has been politicized in a way that it doesn't feel like we're at the point where it's unclear that we can actually get anything done. Even if we could get anything done, it seems like it's a it's a debate that we're not going to actually be able to convince people in the US to actually give a shit about. The political Meanwhile, system can't do this, right? It's just yeah, it's beyond it. Meanwhile, did we talk on here about how there was a story last week about how in um, a new Trump administration report from the the uh, traffic, what is it, what is it, the, the Highway Traffic Safety Administration or whatever, um, at the end of it basically argues that climate change is real and that's why we should do away with fuel efficiency standards because we're already screwed. So we might as well, like, you know, just enjoy the gas while it lasts. Which is interesting head. because you're right. It was the Trump administration acknowledging, saying, like, yep, climate change is real. We're screwed. Since we're screwed, let's yeah. get rid of all the rules. Mm-hmm. Nick? I, this is, there are a few things that we talk about that I'm vehemently um, interested in mm-hmm. in one particular way. This is one of those things, especially for people my age, older millennials, somewhere between, you know, 82 and 95. This is the thing that should galvanize you. It should be one of the only things that galvanizes you. This and student loan debt should be the things (laughs) that you run, that, that you should focus on. I, 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 to an um, to the umpteenth degree when you're talking about uh, a, a future political movement. The science is so obvious and so clear, and like you know, like I even have conversations with my parents. You know, you know, I was in class in seventy, you know, the mid seventies, and you know, the world was you know going to be a, a hot house by nineteen eighty five, and that didn't happen. And you know, the air is so much cleaner now than it was. And you you, you don't understand. It's not it's not weather. Like this is this is more than that. And on top of that, it's you're you're not going to have to deal with it as much as we're going to have to deal with it. Just from a, perma- a pragmatic perspective, this is something that I understand it's going to cause economic discomfort for the time being. But we haven't sacrificed anything from an economic standpoint since World War II. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I don't even think if we if we really put a concerted effort behind this, we would have to sacrifice that much. On top of that, it creates so much opportunity going forward and the ability to transfer labor and uh, and skills and uh, industries into something that is profitable for ever for the foreseeable future. I, I, I don't understand I mean, I understand the reason why you don't do it because you have a system in place that is profitable and I, you, there's no reason for you to do that. But just the self-centeredness of 
and I'll say the early part of your generation sure. oh, and yeah. people prior to you, yeah. it just makes me want to kick you in the teeth most yeah, of no, the time. It's and it's really fucking bugging me lately. Well, so something needs to be done about this. And, and I, there's, a, there's a realization within a certain segment of the society that that is the case. But the political system has no incentive to move. No. And it, it just strikes me that we're running off the edge of a cliff. Yep. Everybody now realizes we're heading toward that cliff. And this could be the, I mean, it's too extreme, but at the end of the civilization, and we're just going to keep sprinting off that cliff saying, Mm -hmm. eh, you know, that's just what we're going to do. The amazing thing is that I don't think everybody realizes it. Really? If you sit around, yes. I think if you sit around and listen, you know, my dad, um, you know, where his main news source is Fox News, I don't think he believes this, right? I think he very much believes, I think, you know, my, I don't know, my brother-in-law, I think probably believes that, you know, maybe climate change is happening, but it's not human caused or whatever. Sure. We're really the only country in the world that takes that yes. stance. It's it is really remarkable. And the stuff that they talk about in this report, we're not it's not like, hey, we can all go, you know, we walk to work once a week or we no. drive a Prius. It's like fundamental restructuring right. of the economic Yes. And social structure of of like the world, trillions of dollars. Yes, yeah. but to the point that that's necessary if we want to continue to have a civilization, right? Right. I mean, that's that's their point that if you want life to persist in a in a somewhat similar way to now, there's got to be huge changes. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's been not a concern. There's been an effort. I, I think the statistic I saw was that. Um, uh, emissions from the U.S. were down 14% over the past 10 years, but global emissions were up 22% yeah. over that same time period, which realistically is, to some extent, a, a result of the advancement of the global system that we put in place, mm-hmm. places like China and mm-hmm. India and you know newer industrialized countries that feel like they need to catch up to where we are, and we've given them the tools to do so. Yeah. Um and I, I completely understand the viewpoint that you got there this way, so why can't we? But I, it's, I, I, you, you think about the consequences of this oh. and the thought of me or people younger than me having children and having to deal with those consequences really should give you pause about what could potentially be coming. I, 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 I'm so angry about it. I don't even, and nobody gives a shit about it. And something needs to be done. You people, my age, a little, little older slash a little younger. Not those people after like 95, those Gen Z people who don't give a shit about anything and thinks everything's <laughs> offensive. No, They're none of evil. you people. There's like a seven-year period of people that we need to do things. You know what strikes me as funny, Nick, is so we've had a couple of listeners uh, who don't know. They haven't seen us. They don't know how you know what our ages I'm are. I'm apparently like a 60-year-old man I or think something. That, that, I, that makes me laugh all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> My it son, doesn't make me laugh. My son thinks you're hilarious. <laughs> oh, yay! <laughs> That's good. I got the 13-year-old yeah, demographic. Yeah, That's right. That Nick is younger than Bill and I by like 45 years. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's jump to the final topic, which I'm really excited about here. It's it's kind of a political science It's academic. It's theoretical. Is it time to abolish the Senate? All right. All attention that was paid to the Senate this last couple weeks has revived a conversation about just how democratic the institution is. Comparative politics scholar... Phil Barker, Phil Barker, uh, have long argued that the structure of the U.S. Senate makes it one of the most unrepresentative major legislatures in the democratic world. Thanks to the principle of equal state representation, which grants each state two senators regardless of the population, 
the great majority of people end up grossly marginalized by the body. Uh, body. It's a problem that has only gotten worse over time. For example, a majority of Americans now live in just nine states, which translates to just 18 votes, while the minority holds 82, a ratio of better than 4 to 1. If we focus just on the representation on this podcast, Phil lives in New Hampshire with a population of 1.3 million, and he gets two senators. Nick and I live in Illinois with a population of 12.8 million. We also get two senators. It would take roughly 10 New Hampshires to equal one Illinois, yet we get equal equal representation in the Senate. That's just math, people. Uh, Phil, people spend a lot of time talking about the Electoral College, but shouldn't we also think about the structural problems of the Senate? Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, so this is I, this is a, a weird thing for me. The, the, the reverence that we have in the United States for the political structures put in place 250 years ago is, is strange to me. I, I, that doesn't mean that the people who put together the Constitution weren't brilliant and informed by really, you know, impressive and important ideas. But the idea that we, we treat the Constitution like the Ten Commandments, right? They're like they were handed down from by God and they are holy and we can't touch them. Um, the idea that we could look back at this and say, hey, this made sense 250 years ago, but maybe we should tweak it, uh, is something that we are like unwilling to even consider in the United States. Uh, from a comparative politics perspective, there are lots of countries that do a system like the United States, where you have one branch of the legislature that is based on population and one in which you give like regional entities states representation germany does it that way but in those cases the 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 branch of of the legislature that it represents the states is dramatically less powerful mm -hmm. right the one that represents the people where where representation is tied to population is in those other is in other countries almost always far more powerful it is essentially the most important deliberative body and and that's where it feels like we're going with a very you know late 18th century idea of government <laughs> for 21st the 21st century world it, it, it just seems like we should at least have a conversation about it which so, we're not going to do so which components specifically of the Senate? if we're talking about the differences between the house of representatives and the senate what particular aspects of the senate rankle your ass, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, I mean, if we're talking about the difference between population and state re representation, what components don't sit right with you? Well, the, I mean, the, I mean, the, the main thing is the, the idea that uh, the Senate has important powers, right? Like the confirmation of a Supreme Court justice mm -hmm. or, you know, the passing of legislation. And that um, uh, the, you can have a majority of senators that come from, I don't, I don't, you, you kind of cited some of the statistics. You could get 50 senators on board with something that come from states that represent, you know, 30% of the American population or whatever. The vast majority of people live in a handful of places. So Wyoming, which has 400,000 people, has as much say in the next Supreme Court justice as, you know, you said 12 million people in yeah. Illinois, right? Texas has, I don't I should know how many people live there, but California is like 40 million people, right. right? Like that they are equally, they have the e equal amounts of say. That is, it's not undemocratic, but it is certainly, I mean, if we talk about the idea of, you know, one person e equal before the law, one person, one vote, that is out the window with the Senate, right? Like well, you want to have a, you want to have a disproportionate role in American politics, move to Wyoming. Well, and that's important to note because 
it's written in the Constitution, so it's okay. But the Supreme Court has said, well, you know, that that proportionality, one person, one vote matters. So if you came back with the current structure of the Senate right now, the Supreme Court would throw it out as unconstitutional. But because it's in the Constitution, it's it's okay, right? I mean, we wouldn't allow that kind of disproportionate representation anymore. Um, and, and my fear in all of this, both with the Senate and with the Supreme Court is that those institutions get out of whack with where the country is. And right. as that happens, then we lose faith in these institutions. So if the Supreme Court moves to a place where the, the American public just isn't any, isn't supportive of it anymore, that institution, lose, we lose faith in that institution. The same thing with the Senate, where if, you know, 60 or 70 percent of the American public is in one place, but that Senate, because of the unique way it distributes power, is another place. Eventually, there's going to be concern with those democratic institutions. Sure, but I mean, you can also take this to the other extreme, where the power is not necessarily completely in the hands of, you know, popular vote right. or, or the yeah. essence of the American. That would be in the hands of pretty much California and New York and Texas, Texas and yeah. that's about it. Right. Realistically, in California, and that's about it. So, I, I mean, there needs to be a balance. I. I, I I'm not necessarily on board with the concept of the Senate itself being restructured. I think there are certain powers and, and potential points of influence that can be transferred to either the House of Representatives or just kind of morphed into a different form. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't necessarily have a problem with the way the system is structured now. I think it's been manipulated in a way to benefit a particular political party depending on which sure. political party happens to be in power or is frankly more savvy at using the system to their advantage um yeah i i, I don't know i i mean especially in in the in terms of the supreme court as we've seen over the past few weeks i think that a lot of things that are political decisions right now need to be removed completely from the political process in my opinion but uh, yeah, I, I, hmm. long term, if you continue to have, I think about the Electoral College, if you continue to have the country voting for one candidate and the Electoral College appointing another, same thing with Supreme Court justice. I mean, that, that ultimately, there's got to be something that gives. And I think about the United Kingdom with its House of Lords, which they eventually realized this thing is stupid. We got to move beyond that, and they took the power away from that but they institution. They have like wigs, and I know like, that that does. Very that's, fancy. A, that's a great point. Like, I like those the wigs. cool dogs yeah. with the long yeah. hair. And, and we've made changes to the Senate in the past, right? right. It wasn't originally a democratic institution. Mm -hmm. Like the direct election of the Senate was something that people you know called for basically said this is this is bullshit <laughs> that right. states just get to appoint people to do this right. if we want to have truly democratic institutions we need to we need to you know alter the way it's done and so it's happened in the past um so yeah i mean i it's anyway this was a concern james madison had with the original document he said the senate is problematic so yeah but he sucked well i don't yeah. really know if he sucked. they didn't I'm make just, a like, play about him, him so or no. musical about him <laughs> they so. should have hamilton <laughs> sucked he actually did oh suck. this was a good one this is yeah, fun it was interesting yeah, we yeah, some, some raw things. topics you know? yeah it's Shut uh, up. oh god that hurt a lot <laughs> i always <laughs> that's the second time i've done there are so many knobs and things on this thing. It's, I'm sorry, guys. I know your your speakers are probably blown at this point. I'm not. None of us are going to pay for it, by the way. Um, 
yeah, if if you liked that, and for some reason like the fact that we blow out your eardrums and speakers on a regular basis, um, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, check our uh, beer reviews on the Untapped app on iOS and Android. Uh, the podcast, SoundCloud, um, Google Play Music, Stitcher. Uh, a lot of you guys are on iTunes, so review us, uh, share us through there. Um, we appreciate the support. Uh, like I said at the beginning, uh, definitely check out Predict It, um, which if you missed it, is a uh, Predict It is a pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Um, Barstool Politics listeners. Uh, who use the uh, promotional link uh, when opening up a new account receive up to a $20 match on their first deposit. So if you open up a $20 account, they will match that uh, with another $20. So you get $40 to uh, buy and sell shares uh, on political things, which is a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun with it. Um, So definitely check it out. It's good. Yes. Good plugs, Nick. Oh, God. (laughs) Now now things are just clicking and breaking. (laughs) Phil, anything else before everything just starts on fire for some reason? I don't think so. All right. Bill, you good? Good. Great. We'll see you guys next week then. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers.